0: Welcome to The Lodgers, Sorted Cinemas, Twin Peaks podcast. My name is Simon Howell. I'm joined as always by bomb Hello. And very excited to introduce, uh, he's a writer for Cinemascope and The Ringer, and he has a new book out on Ben Wheatley called Confusion and Carnage, the films of Ben Wheatley. It's Adam Neyman. Hey there. And uh, today we are talking about, uh, as you would imagine, based on our narrative trajectory so far on this podcast, it's time for Fire Walk With Me. Of course, the... Infamous feature film directed by Lynch and written by Lynch and Robert Engels. No involvement from Mark Frost, as Kate mentioned last week. Kate, since since you've always sort of brought the historical perspective, I wonder if, if you might in, indulge us by sort of setting up how Fire Walk With Me happened.
1: Uh, yeah, I mean, I can do a little bit. I think we talked about it uh, last week, but... Basically, Lynch had been given a three-picture development deal uh, right as Twin Peaks was ending, uh, and it was agreed with this set of people that the first movie would be this Twin Peaks prequel. Uh, And I haven't confirmed this, but I've heard critics mention this idea that the prequel was supposed to be the first of a series of Twin Peaks films, that like the other two films in this deal would be Twin Peaks films that would continue to kind of build out the story. Um, I I don't know if that's actually true or not. But anyway, so he was given this money to do the film, um, set out with Robert Engels to write the screenplay, and then proceeded to approach the cast to ask the cast to be part of it and kind of was met with very mixed results from the cast. Uh... Sherilyn Fenn and Richard Boehmer and a couple of other uh, bigger people I'm going to forget right now turned it... Oh, Laura Flamboyle most obviously turned it down. Uh, Richard Boehmer cite, cited the fact that he just really didn't like the screenplay. He thought it was super dark. He didn't understand like what Ben Horn was doing in the screenplay. Um, I actually just think... I mean, people like Sherilyn Fenn, I think they were just really fed up with how the second season had gone. Uh, I mean, nobody... People are very polite about it now because I think Lynch has, to his credit, like rebuilt a lot of the relationships that that got into trouble uh in that latter part of season two but a lot of people felt very abandoned by both him and frost and that they'd sort of been left with this show that had tanked and so i don't think they were super happy to get back on board for a film so lynch only sort of got about half the cast um but we can we can talk about this more later. Uh, for people who've been able to see the missing pieces sequences, there is a version of Fire Walk with Me that actually has many more of the original cast in it than are in the final version of the film. But that was only really confirmed uh, three years ago when the missing pieces came out. So, hmm. anyway.
0: Now, Adam, again, thanks for thanks for joining us this week. I, I guess it's it's no secret that you know obviously the film was critically. Trashed at the time. It's undergone like a massive reevaluation over the last few years. Why do you think that is?
2: Well, I mean, part of it. I'll 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 do the skeptical thing first. I'm not skeptical of Fire Walk with Me. I think Fire Walk with Me is great. I think it's one of the two or three best Lynch features. But like, we're just definitely living in a moment where anything that provokes a strong, harsh reaction is instant grist for the sort of reevaluation mill. Particularly, mm-hmm. there's a couple of reasons for that. I mean. It, it's always nice to to make it seem like you are seeing something that a bunch of people miss. I mean, I know of what I speak here, because I wrote a book on Showgirls. Like, that's exhibited <laughs> today. Actually, Showgirls and Fire Walk With Me had somewhat similar responses. Though Showgirls, of course, didn't show it at Cannes, but they were both examples of, of movies by previously respected and acclaimed directors that were seen as them kind of going off the, the rails. So I think that there's just sort of a culture of of reevaluation, a culture of, of misunderstood masterpieces it's a way of asserting one's own you know critical acuity and doing it all over the backs of people who were wrong 10 or 15 or, or 20 years ago but I mean also it's not hard to understand why a movie like that wasn't popular because it's very hard to watch and it's very hard to take yes it's very hard to like and in some ways it's hard to reconcile the admiration that it elicits based on how well made it is, how well acted it is, how effective it is with its content. There are a lot of people who sort of, I know uh, maybe more women than men, but I know people whose taste I think is good and whose sensibility I align with. And, you know, their problem with Fire Walk with Me isn't that it's a bad movie. It's just that it's a really bad time and they're not sure that the skill and the, the, the vision that it's made with, you know, um, rehabilitates that or, or 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 redeems that. I mean, I do think it's funny that some of the most overt, loudest critics of the movie tended to be sort of famous people, someone like Quentin Tarantino, who basically had like, sort of you know he he said he was done, you know, done with Lynch after that movie. I think there's something very opportunistic about that as well. I think David Lynch was in a really vulnerable point in nineteen ninety two in terms of people being sick of him. So there's that, too. It's not just that the movie's tough. It's that, like, after *Wild at Heart*, *One at Can*, after the second season of *Twin Peaks*, he's kind of alone at that point as, like, you know, American director whose last name is its own adjective. Like,
1: hmm.
2: that's where Lynch is in the early '90s. So, of course, there's going to be a, a backlash.
1: Yeah, it's interesting trying to. I, I tried to review some of the criticism that came out in in the in '92 in the wake of *It's Playing at Can* and it's it's fascinating to try to chart this because like as you say Adam there there was a very clear um, response that had to do with people's relationship with season 2 of the show and it's quite funny because the critics tend to tended to really bash fire walk with me by both saying that it was It was such a radical departure from the television show that that's why everybody hated it. And then on the other hand, critics tended to say it did exactly what the TV show and it did. And it was sticking way too close to what the TV show was doing. And therefore it was uninteresting and repetitive and Lynch just doing the same thing over and over again, Uh, which is hilariously contradictory of course, but there was really a sense I think in which um, fire walk with me was set up to fail from the beginning. People were already really frustrated with Lynch over season two and uh, and wild at heart and just sort of being everywhere. He was on the cover of Rolling Stone magazine with Isabella Rossellini. He had been such a big deal. And uh, it was, it was um, backlash. I mean, it was, you know, Jennifer Lawrence in a, to make a silly version of that, but I, it just, I think people had had enough. And I don't think Fire Walk With Me, it is such a difficult film that I think even under the most ideal circumstances, it probably wasn't going to reach a large audience and it had really unideal circumstances.
2: Yeah. I, I would agree. And uh, the only thing I would add is that, It's Again, we're in this moment where the early 90s, where I think the three of us to varying degrees and ages kind of came of age, right? Like not just in terms of seeing movies, but reading criticism and, and participating in some kind of cinephilia. Like people have made the argument that Twin Peaks was sort of the start of fan culture. And if the internet had existed in 1992 the way it does now, there would have been deep dives on Twin Peaks every day. Now we have those deep dives on Twin Peaks just delayed. I mean, I can't think of a movie... I mean, or I, let's just say I can't think of a director who's more conducive to the deep dive, let's really get into the movie style of criticism. And that just also didn't – it's not that it didn't exist in 1992, but it wasn't prevalent, yeah. right? I mean, most of those reviews, if you went back and read them, those are 800 word pieces. Yeah,
1: Exactly. Yeah, Most. Yeah. At most.
2: So it's a movie whose virtues and flaws, if, if, you, if you see it as a flawed movie, they, they take some time. To unpack and I can totally understand the short version of someone's reaction from Ken being like I really hated watching this so it's bad I gotta watch it now today so enough of enough of this that's probably
0: the best opening we're gonna get to take a deep dive and really get into the movie I guess the film has a reputation quite deservedly as being difficult and hard to watch and just really sort of punishing but doesn't start out that way it starts obviously with this you know roughly 20 minute ish prologue of course with uh, Chris Isaac and Kiefer Sutherland and David Bowie and all kinds of off-the-wall zaniness
2: well I have thoughts on this and I want to test them against Kate because while I'm very familiar with Lynch and a big fan I am far less of a Twin Peaks authority and when I did a course on Lynch I even conceded that when I was lecturing I'm like Twin Peaks, the series, not my my favorite. So my theory, and I'll just float it in a kind of short way, and then Kate, you can jump on it and tell me if you think it's really wrong. I think everything in that first twenty minutes, starting with the smashed television, which is a you know pretty memorable image, it seems to me like he's it, it's very contemptuous of the show. And the popularity of the show and if not the fan base of the show, like just a a kind of approach to Twin Peaks. And I think it's perfunctory in a way that's really funny. It's like here's another town, here's another crime, here's other detectives, here's Lynch himself controlling all of it. You know, like Lynch is the one playing the FBI director, sending these guys on assignment. And I feel like even when they're decoding the the behavior, you know, with the lipstick and the dancing, it's it feels like a parody. It feels like a kind of self-parody, but the reason that I'm not sure I believe that is because we all think David Lynch is totally earnest and totally above the idea of, you know, of of irony. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I'm not sure I'm satisfied with that take on the film, but it's how I've always seen it, that you kind of get through the Deer Meadow stuff, and then you have the actual movie that matters.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's interesting. Well, I mean, I can give the audience just a bit of a, um, again, backstory that that gives a bit of a reason as to why they ended up structuring the film with this very clear sort of demarcation at, at I think, about the 30-minute line. Uh, and some of that was that in the original version of the screenplay, they'd written all of it around uh, Cooper. They'd written all of it around Kyle McLaughlin. Kyle McLaughlin was going to be the main character for a good chunk of the film. And again, because McLaughlin was uh, maybe unhappy with the way things had gone in season two... Uh, after some convincing, first he'd said no entirely and then after some convincing he agreed to do a week. Uh, so they only had a week with McLaughlin. So they went back and rewrote the screenplay and you get the smaller things that you have with him but then they were sort of led to this new character of Ch- Chet Desmond. And I mean, I think you, once you know that you can kind of think, oh yeah, maybe this was just sort of like a, something they had to do and it wasn't really that integral. I-, I have to admit, after thinking about it for this podcast, I feel like I'm reading lots of people's very smart reviews about it. There are some really solid reviews of this movie that are out floating around now Um, i do think that i have been convinced that there is actually some really valuable stuff going on in this inversion uh, that you get of the town of twin peaks in deer meadow which i mean i think adam you're right like it certainly could read as as just a sort of like iteration of you know this generic stuff that you expect to get in these kinds of things but there also is a very clear way in which it is it is like a mirror image of twin peaks um you know the the cops are awful they're met like the, these local sheriff people are terrible they're met with such hostility and aggression and everything is sort of cold and too bright and you know it's all, it, it it's not it is in many ways the opposite of the town of Twin Peaks and and at first you just sort of think okay well whatever maybe that's just a thing but thinking about it in relation to the rest of the film and and we'll get into this more as we go forward but in a lot of ways, the remainder of the film ends up functioning as the inverse image of the television series. And this is most obvious in the fact that in the television series, Laura Palmer is an object. She is, she is missing from what happens. Everything is about everyone else's reaction to Laura as this absent force. And then the movie is all about Laura as a subject. Laura is, is, her viewpoint is the thing that shapes everything. And I actually think opening with a town that is meant to be an inversion of everything good about Twin Peaks reflects really interestingly on the subjective experience that Laura has of Twin Peaks. I mean, I think in a lot of ways, you could sort of simplistically say Deer Meadow is how Twin Peaks is for Laura. It's not this sort of wonderful, lovely place of pie and chocolate. It is a lonely, crushing, mean, awful place. And so I I feel like I've been convinced of that as an integral element of the film.
2: No, and I mean, it's an interesting point, because of course, one of the simultaneously like thematically sophisticated and also potboilery silly tropes on the tv show is that well, there's a twin right yes. and, you have a lower, and then you know you have you have a sh- double role so you know um I, I think that you can get a lot of mileage out of duality with certain directors and lynch is definitely one of them that idea of mirrors and types and 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 you know um People with, with dual personalities, especially, is, is something that's constant in his work. So, yeah, the idea of, of, of Dear Meadow as a twin of Twin Peaks, the way Maddie is a, a twin of Laura. When you mentioned Laura being an, a, a, an absence or kind of just a structuring device in the series versus the movie focusing on her, that's true. And it's why one of my favorite things, it's almost in the moment that the movie transitions from the Dear Meadow to the Twin Peaks stuff, is her photo in the glass case in the school, mm. Lynch loves that image. Like that image is in The Elephant Man. It's um, Merrick's mother in the locket. It's the beginning of Dune with Virginia Madsen's floating head. He loves these floating female heads sort of in space <laughs> or framed or, or, or enclosed. But that image of Laura Palmer, is it a prom homecoming photo it, yes. yeah. yeah.
1: It played over the original credits of the show for that, the entire run, yeah.
2: So we see, I think it's Bobby looking at it and the movie is going to sort of really complicate that gaze by sort of just, you know, she's not a photo anymore. She's in full motion. And and yeah. yes, the shift in point of view comes to, to her. And, you know, obviously the most horrendous moments of the movie are literally coded from her point of view. They are things that she sees. It's a really, really sophisticated switch. And the filmmaking just kicks into gear about half an hour. In, and I just love it.
0: It's remarkable to me that the film was ever going to be organized around Kyle McLaughlin because... I mean, Cheryl Lee, it's not only maybe not the best performance in a Lynch film, but certainly very, very close to it. But more than that, this is a film that's powered by a performance more so than any other Lynch film, I think.
1: I mean, maybe with the exception of Laura Dern in Inland Empire. I think that's maybe the only other one where I would, I would say there's something similar going on there. But I do think that Cheryl Lee maybe shows Lynch here the, the value of, of doing that kind of work, right? Of um centering something so much around an individual's performance. And I I do say th- I mean think Cheryl Lee is amazing in the film. Like she is she is really, really stunning and it is not easy work. And one of the things that I found maybe the most dispiriting about going back and reading the original, um, a lot of the original criticism around it was uh, and again, I, I mean, I think Adam is, is being very fair-handed in terms of reminding l- reminding us all the critics were writing from their moment, and, and I don't mean to throw any particular critics under the bus, and I won't, but there is a, a kind of remarkable sense in which the film Firewalk With Me, when you feel like you are in sync with it and it, and it makes sense to you as a viewer, is because it is asking for a certain kind of empathy, right? It is asking for a willingness to be in the shoes of someone going through one of the most horrible sort of lives ever to have been led. And um, it's it's hard to read critics saying things like, well, this movie is about this self-involved brat who just wants to do cocaine and it's terrible. And Cheryl Lee is like, I mean, blah, she looks like she's 30 years old. She's supposed to be a teenager. Like, it's hard to read that stuff when, when the film is so wearing on its sleeve its its need for for people to love Laura as a character the way that I think Lynch does. And not love in the sense of sort of turning her into into an object, but loving her in the sense of understanding that there is this, like, unbearable experience here and trying to really be with it rather than just sort of code it and name it and move on. And, yeah, anyway.
2: Well, one of the, I mean, again, it's the, the word empathy is interesting because there's one hand on which I completely agree with you. And I think that the film is finally a triumph of that kind of empathy, both within its story, you know, that the the emotional uh, work and sacrifice that a character makes, and then also, you know, empathy for the viewer. But on the other hand, you know, that empathy is the flip side of an incredible cruelty that comes out of driving Laura's situation in the first place. And, I I know that when True Detective, the TV show came out, which I had a certain amount of time for when it started and then found disappointing, you know, as it went along. But people wrote that one of the things you can trace back to Twin Peaks, uh, Simon and I were talking before we started recording about this idea of, you know, fan culture and Twin Peaks being at the center of that, but also just the, the trope of the beautiful dead girl and i mean look it's older than twin peaks i mean you have like laura for example the 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 film with gene Turney. i mean there are other movies that deal with these images of, of unknowable you know dead women but it's interesting to sort of ask you know can that empathy exist without the cruelty of creating someone like laura in the first place you know a character who's who's either um, you know, uh, a total innocent or a total, you know, seen as a total whore, which is a really, really traditional binary for female behavior. Uh, A a woman who often appears hysterical, a woman who spends a lot of her screen time being menaced or abused. Again, I'm not saying this, you know, in a way of of critiquing it. If anything, I'm saying this is all a compliment to to Cheryl Lee's acting, because I remember someone wrote, it might have been the David Foster Wallace piece on Lynch when he's making Lost Highway, but someone wrote, like, Cheryl Lee deserved an Oscar just for coming to set. Whatever you think of the acting, just taking on that part. And I think she's absolutely amazing especially because she's a less tutored or experienced actor than some of the other people who Lynch has worked with. I mean, Simon was saying Lynch movies dependent on performance. I think a lot of them are, but I mean, like John Hurt, Shakespearean trained actor doing, a, you know, you know, doing the Elephant Man or Laura Dern's one of the best American actresses by the yeah. time she does Inland Empire. The whole point of Cheryl Lee on Twin Peaks she didn't originally have much to do. She was cast more as an image than as someone who had to really play a part. And so then, hinging a two and a half hour movie like *Fire Walk with Me* on her—that's really risky. And I just commend her for for standing up to it and doing. I just think some of the most amazing acting I've ever seen.
1: I mean, I think this question of the cruelty and empathy—I think is really at the at the heart of the film. And I have, I have like a, my big gun point that I wanted to make about this. So I guess I can do it now, and maybe we can then sort of get into more specific elements of the film if we want to. But. One of the things that I was thinking about this morning, when I was watching the film again, I sort of got up at eight AM to finish watching the movie. Uh, starting your day watching *Fire Walk with Me* is is a hard, <laughs> a hard <laughs> place to be, and it took me maybe two hours to get out of the funk afterwards because it is such, it is such a a, a sad film. I mean, just in a, such a really true, deep way. And <laughs> that's a hard
0: cup of Good Morning America.
1: Exactly. And and one of the things that I again thought about reading some of these older reviews. Where you have critics saying sort of over and over again things like, I mean, this movie, we know that Laura Palmer is killed by her father. You know, there's no suspense here. And and Lynch really struggles to make anything interesting happen without this kind of like suspense of what's going on. Which again, I think maybe made sense when you were expecting Twin Peaks to function as a sort of mystery show that that response makes total sense. However, I find it really surprising that... That I haven't. I mean, and again, correct. I'm sure there are reviews out there that do this. I'm sure I'm not the first person to think of this, but there is a a really clear way in which having Laura's uh, fate already be known when the film starts puts this film very much in the realm of of tragedy, of like both classical and modern tragedy. The idea that this is this is not a sort of story of sort of simple psychological kind of interaction. It is a story of like the fates, you know, the fates versus the individual. This is the classical shape of tragedy. And, you know, and then in the modern form of tragedy, it becomes more about sort of the psychological realm rather than the kind of social uh, ramifications of tragedy. But I, I do think that there is something really admirable, but inevitably problematic a little bit, maybe, about using, about Lynch finding a way to make this kind of tragic framework hinge on a female character. And he does the same thing in things like Inland Empire. But here... So I have to sort of get to this slowly. So in classical tragedy, um, you know, like the Aristotelian definition of tragedy is it's it's men in action. It's like the the, the unfolding of actions, and that's what happens. And, and then you sort of follow this all the way through to the end that is this very exaggerated end of a of maybe a sort of small tension becomes this, this huge thing that, that is out of control and runs over everything. Um, so that makes sense. But then when you flip it onto a woman, and I mean, and Lynch is not the first to do this, right? Particularly in modern tragedy, there's a whole series of these characters. Hedda Gabler, uh, Nora from Ibsen's Dollhouse. Um, I'm trying to think of who else. Miss Julie, like even Antigone early on. But Laura Palmer like very much fits into this tradition of being at the center of, like, forces that she cannot win against and trying to find a sort of narrative in that that allows her her own kind of victory. And I, I do think that you get into something when you flip away from the male character, which has so traditionally been about a form of action, and you flip into the female character, and, you know, for whatever reason, the way that narratives get set up... And I, and I don't think this is anybody's fault. This is sort of simply a set of pre-existing modes that we find ourselves within... What ends up happening for the female side of the tragedy is it's not the woman's action. It's the woman being subjected to action. It's the woman being subjected to males treating her a certain way, to the universe treating her a certain way. And so you have to find, like, the victory for Laura and these characters in that space is a sort of kind of holding up against cruelty. It's trying to find, you know, like, I mean, really, the narrative here becomes Laura's fight to maintain something of hope and goodness and belief within this sort of like complete abandonment and cruelty of the world. And I think it's kind of amazing that Lynch lets her be the center of this sort of philosophical battle in a way that is really rare for for female characters. I don't think it exists very often because it is so touchy and so dangerous to have this sort of space of sort of passivity and cruelty be the center of this stuff. And sorry, that's my last, that's my big point for this thing. So then I will (laughs) (laughs) stop ranting, but yeah
2: i think often of um there's a line in lost highway which is a movie i like very much and you know um i I think a lot of lynch's movies play well together but you know lost highway is very male point of view it's very much about the identity crisis of a male character is he a husband is he a young punk you know is he a musician is he a mechanic i mean we talking about Lost Highway on another podcast, but Patricia Arquette in one of her two guises, because like all of Lynch's women, like Laura she's divided between the light and dark side. You know, uh, except in this case, the, the 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 femme fatale is blonde, and the 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 wife is is brunette. But she says to him during a dream scene, "You'll never have me," right? And in the context of Lost Highway, it's a very teasing, tantalizing line. It's about his fantasy is never gonna be realized. I think at the end of Fire Walk With Me as a variant on that line said from a more heroic point of view, the idea of you'll never have me. I mean, what Bob wants is to be Laura, yeah. right? He wants to possess her, he wants to be in her. All the that evil force, which is so convoluted within the show's mythology, but by the time you get to the end of the movie, the convolution falls away and it's this appalling image of a father trying to rape his his daughter and you know it's a it's a pyrrhic victory or a self-sacrificing victory she doesn't survive it she doesn't get possessed she doesn't get had you know and you know in lost highway there's this inscrutable mysterious noirish femme fatale aspect to you'll never have me in in fire walk with me it's like defiant and, you know, uh, you know, heroic that, that that's something that she's able, even though it's very much a victim narrative, she's able to, 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 to she's and, and and actually, I mean, it's not even that she saves herself. There's a kind of guardian angel, you know, a motif there too. But it's kind of about a woman who's not possessed. And that final shot of her, which is a perfect rhyme with the yearbook photo or the prom photo, but it's in another place as opposed to trapped. I was like the idea that she's either wrapped in plastic or trapped under glass in the photo yeah. case. And by the yeah. end, she exists in a free space where she's not constrained. Yeah. I mean, that's a version of a happy ending. It's a melancholy ending. It's a draining ending, but it's a kind of a, a happy ending and very sort of cathartic. And I think that that catharsis is possible because of how awful what we go mm. through prior to that yeah. is. I would argue the last 20 minutes of fire walk with me is the most abject brutalizing stretch of any American narrative film that I can think of. And I asked friends of mine who went to a recent screening of the film, how the audience took that in at the screening in Toronto, where they showed it in 35 millimeter. And I think a lot of people who think Twin Peaks has a campy reputation or that the film has a sort of so bad, it's good reputation. They're not ready for that mm-hmm. because it's not funny.
1: Yeah. Simon was there at that screening. So Simon, how was your, uh, your reaction to that whole thing?
0: The screening was bizarre in a lot of ways, and I don't I don't want to get into it too much on this podcast because you know people weren't there. But I mean, definitely the the legacy of the film is convoluted in ways and, and for reasons that we've kind of already explained. There were early parts of the film that did inspire like quite a lot of laughter, especially the in the in that sort of opening, um, sort of preface sequence, which I think is is totally valid and fair. I mean, I'm not I'm not telling people how to watch stuff, but it's it's understandable that it happens. And then throughout, there's a few moments. You know, obviously some of the for series fans, obviously, some of the interactions between James and Laura are just very satisfying. <laughs> um, you know, her her slapping him around and giving him the finger—that's good stuff. When you've put up with thirty episodes of, of James, that inspired some um, some laughter. But yes, you're right. the The overwhelming sensation, especially seeing it on thirty five and so loud at the Royal, uh, was just it was a it was an overwhelmingly emotional experience. I, I did want to talk about something you said Kate about uh, sort of trying to carve out a space of beauty um, I didn't go looking for queer readings of Firewalk with me um, but they must exist because something I would totally forgotten about is the fact that the the Laura and Donna relationship is very much sort of the emotional heart of the film in terms of interrelationships much more so than anything with her and and Bobby or God forbid James um, and uh, I think it's really it's the, the casting of Moira Kelly is fascinating to me because, first of all, I think it's a shame that Lara Flynn Boyle missed out on the film because the material that Donna gets in the film is a lot more interesting than most of what Donna got to do in, like, the entire second season. So it's sort of tragic to me that she didn't get to be in a part of the film. On the other hand, Moira Kelly has this—she doesn't really look anything like Lara Flynn Boyle. In fact, she has this much—her features are a lot softer, almost like dough like Having her play Donna versus you know like the way that she comes across on screen versus she makes Lara Flynn Boyle by by comparison seem like really stony and and self possessed and in a way having her play Donna it actually feels right in a strange way like obviously it's it feels like like I'm justifying like uh, you know a a necessary production decision but it has sort of. um that recasting works for the transition that Donna's character presumably has to make after these events unfold. And I, and I will just add quickly, don't be surprised if a third actress plays Donna in the new series because Lynch has talked about this film being important to the, uh, you know, sort of central to understanding this, this rebooted season. And Donna is so central to this film that I can't imagine she wouldn't be represented in some way.
1: Yeah, I have lots of thoughts about the Donna and uh, and Laura stuff as well. Um, I kind of hundred percent agree with you, Simon. Like I, I, Jessica, who's one of our previous guests here, we were talking about this film recently, and she was saying that for her, the recasting of Donna has always been a real problem. And and I was saying, I, you know, when I when I watched it when I was young, you know, when I watched it the first time when I was maybe eighteen or something, and, and mostly was just left confused by it as like an eighteen year old trying to get more Twin Peaks. Um, I at the beginning remember being a little miffed that Laura Flynn Boyle wasn't in it, but. I don't know if it's if it's Lynch or Moira Kelly or the two of them together, but for me it, it really works I actually think I actually think Moira Kelly is maybe better as this like I think she works better than Laura Flynn Boyle would have in this role and um i it's interesting that you that you use the terminology of like queer reading around this stuff because I hadn't necessarily thought of that I mean I think there is there is very clear like queer aspects of the film in the sense that that Laura well, I should take that back it's more obvious in the missing pieces than it is in the um current version of the film, but you do get very clear sequences between, uh, Renette Pulaski and Teresa Banks that, that are like, it's clear that Laura has a sort of sexual relationship with them that isn't specifically related to, to men. Uh, so, so there's that angle there. The stuff with Laura and Donna that I find, I find so affecting the sequence in the roadhouse that sort of in the middle of the film where Donna has followed Laura there after Laura has tried to slough her off and, Donna shows up and you get these amazing sequences between them where they're surrounded by men. The whole bar is full of men, you know, all sort of looking at Laura and trying to sort of attach themselves to Laura and and be there. And and all of this information and kind of feeling passes between the two women that is all about things like, you know, Laura trying to convince Donna that Laura is is abject and is not worth anything like love. and And Donna doing her best in this very heartbreaking mode to to try to understand Laura, like, like loving her while sort of understanding so little of what is going on for Laura. There, there is a level there that is just really, really breaks my heart every time. Um, and, and I will say like, I don't ever hear people talking about this aspect of the film, but and it's not like I, I'm not going to say that I had some experience that was like Laura Palmer when I was uh, younger. But a lot of this stuff that Lynch gets out there, these these very complicated dynamics between young women reminds me a lot of what it was like when I was sort of at the end of high school and in in college, like female friendships that are very complicated. And half the time you have no idea what's going on. And there's sort of like a, a competition and a trying to be there. It, anyway, it's all I, I find it very impressive and very moving.
2: Well, in talking about the Laura thing, I mean, a couple of things I wouldn't be. I, I won't be too cute with this, but you know, I'm a big believer that that a movie like Benwell's Obscure Object of Desire is probably something that Lynch has at least seen. You know, and um, there's so much duality in his work. You know, one person as a as a host to two personalities or characters who change or characters who who mutate. That there's something sort of Lynchian in Donna being played by two different people, even if it's a practical rather than an artistic concern and it's also possibly suggests that by the time we meet her in the series she's a different person based on what she's gone through in the the movie i mean i don't want to get too cute with that but in you know i mean the the queer reading is there but i also just one another one of the lines i always think of when i think of fire walk with me and you can correct me if i have the line a little wrong it's doesn't laura tell donna at some point like i don't want you to wear my stuff
1: yeah, she, in the in the bar sequence.
2: Don't wear my stuff. Like, there's a protectiveness there. She doesn't want Donna to be like her. And what's tragic about that, it's not just the protectiveness of female friendship. I think in Donna, she recognizes the part of herself that's not ever going to come back because of what her father or the, the spirit working through her father has done to her. And when we talk about twins as well, like Twin Peaks as a twin for... Dear Meadow and Laura is a twin for Donna. I mean, the bar, the roadhouse, is a double of the, the lodge. Mm-hmm.
1: Right? Both
2: yeah. in um deep red, their subtitle dialogue in both of them. I mean, it's like the 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 roadhouse is kind of a real world corollary to that place. And they're both places that are populated with these secretive, clandestine, awful conversations and these confrontations with predatory male. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know predatory male sexuality and you know that's where you it's where i think people either get lost or found or both when talking about lynch is you know are these films better and there's a i guess an open question for both of you like are these films better if you can derive and decode those layers of intentionality or are the films better when you don't do that. I remember when Mahol and Drive came out I was working at a video store I was 20 years old and mm-hmm. it became like a running neighborhood gimmick where people would rent the movie they'd be like oh the clerk at blockbuster like he'll explain Mahol and Drive to people would <laughs> rent it and ask and I I remembered at a certain point thinking like it's kind of ruining the movie even though for these people it's not these people even though for some of the customers it's fixing the movie. Yeah. It's like but if the movie's hard to understand, if it's irrational, if it's inscrutable, that doesn't necessarily mean it's broken. And I have a very analytical way of watching movies, even when I'm enjoying them. So when I watch something like Fire Walk with me, I'm seeing these connections and toting them up. But then Lynch himself says that's not how he works. Yes. So I I don't know if you guys think that this is a movie that improves if you're able to to find these lines of intention behind these incredibly, as you've described, just kind of emotional and in some ways relatable Feelings yeah, I think both approaches are kind of valid But when I watch the movie I'm looking at it as a kind of a blueprint and that may not be the that may not be the way to go
0: I mean, I seem to have the experience whenever I watch most Lynch films I mean some of them are a little different like the elephant man obviously is kind of an outlier and I still haven't seen the straight story I need to remedy that but oh,
2: it's it's so good.
0: I know (laughs) I know I know anyway um, Yeah, I have this experience whenever when I watch something like fire walk with me or, or lost highway Inland Empire, Mulholland Drive, where the act of watching it is so emotional and and intense and overwhelming. And in the moments after one of those films ends and I really think about it, I can, I feel as though in an analytical way on like a plot level and a character level, I can come up with a a cohesive thesis statement. I can, I can make that work, but it falls away within hours. Not because it, it, it doesn't hold up under scrutiny. It just, I can't, keep those pieces together for very long there's something about the way he pieces together narrative and doesn't piece together narrative where and I think this is why his stuff is so sort of endlessly rewatchable besides you know the obvious reasons of they're just great movies is that they you know I I feel like guys like um like J.J. Abrams and Christopher Nolan like they probably I'm sure they grew up watching Lynch films and they seemingly you know decided hey i love how involved i'm getting but wouldn't it be great if there were answers and uh, <laughs> and they've sort of they 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 were able to make hay with that and um i think people people took the wrong lessons which is which is
2: fine
1: yeah i i was going to so i was actually going to ask cuz i know simon you haven't seen the missing pieces adam have you seen the missing pieces
2: i have i mean i saw them Back when they were when they, came out. when they were unleashed, but yeah, what were you gonna yeah. ask?
1: Well, I so I was uh, I reviewed them as well along with these, and for people who are just interested, if you can, I highly recommend tracking down a copy of the missing pieces. They are, in and of themselves, pretty stunning, but you you really do get. Lynch really was aware of some of the things that people were later angry about the film not having. The, the, um, the missing pieces really do fill in a picture of a show that had a little bit more of a relationship to the television show. You get you get like 15 characters in it that aren't in the movie, and you get a little bit more of the humor, a little bit more of the stuff that relates to the television show. Anyway, you also do get a a number of really truly amazing sequences that play into things like Laura's sort of battle with this these um figures and and like this idea of the angels abandoning her and so there's some amazing stuff there anyway um the reason i brought that up was because uh like jordan cronk i think wrote a piece about the missing pieces for cinemascope when it came out and which is a great piece and uh he talks early on about this idea that was so prevalent at the time, which was that everyone expected Fire Walk With Me to tie up the loose ends that had been left by these, like, radical cliffhangers at the end of season two of Twin Peaks. And, of course, the show doesn't do that. And, and Kronk points out very rightfully that... I think any people who are expecting that were maybe missing something of the ethos of the show, which ha, which has always consistently been, and it's of a piece with Lynch's sort of overall project, which I think is to really to both use labels and expectations and, and answers, but then always to undo that and always push back against that. And I, what's funny is if you watch the missing pieces, there is actually a final missing piece that extends uh, the sequence with Coop in the Great Northern Hotel room that ends the finale of season two lynch went back and shot more for that so you get a little bit sort of more expansive but the interesting thing is that what that means then is this entire four and a half hour original four and a half hour cut fire walk with me ends taking you back to the exact same place where season two ends with no answers right like there's been no forward narrative movement instead it's always this kind of returning and unpacking and finding everything in it that pushes against this sort of neat narrative wrap-up
2: yeah I've I've, I've I've absolutely and it's it, it one can only imagine what the response would have been if the film had been released in that form 25 years ago i mean if people were frustrated with what it was i think they would have been even more so if it had just thrown the idea that we have literally gotten no further in the audience's face <laughs> yeah Inch too it, it complicates the idea of control because a lot of his career and work is there's there's salvage aspects to it. I mean, Maholland Drive was a salvage project. I mean, it's a I mean, everyone knows this, but you know, a failed TV pilot that he radically reimagined into a into a film. There was extra stuff for Inland Empire. You know, I mean, even a film like Blue Velvet only came about in the form it did because of the disastrous experience that he had with Dune. So it's it's one of the reasons that putting Lynch in that category of, of these kind of controlling every inch of the universe's mapped out auteurs, which is how we think of people like Kubrick or certainly like a couple of people you just mentioned, like JJ Abrams who never met a mystery that he's not going to explain to you a hundred times over in the end or, yeah. or someone like Christopher Nolan who you know, creates the most ordered, you know, geometrically precise dream sequences of all time because he doesn't have an uncanny bone in his body. You know, he, he doesn't he, he doesn't have an inscrutable thought in his head. He's, he's mathematically inclined. Um, you know, like, Lynch doesn't fit that. And I truly do think that Lynch has pursued some ideas that he probably doesn't end up thinking are that good, but Twin Peaks universe just keeps sucking him back in. Yeah. He does not said, why don't I re encounter the world of blue velvet? Yeah. You know? Or or how's Betty doing in, in Mulholland Drive? You know, I mean Lost Highway, there's unanswered questions, there's un- unanswered questions in Inland Empire. Twin Peak seems to be a real kind of primal scene for him. And I'm still getting my head around the fact, as Simon was saying before we recorded, that there's like eighteen more hours of this coming. Yes. You Which know? Is, it's yeah. It's really something, and I'm not sure how I feel, I don't know about you guys, but whether I'm excited or, or trepidatious or wondering, especially in light of a movie like Fire Walk with me, how much more can you do with this? Mm-hmm. And I'm not a Lynch skeptic, I'm a Lynch lover, basically. Yeah. But, I mean, really.
1: Did Adam, did you, I can't remember, so so do you? did you know how season two ends? Like, are you kind of up to date on that plot line Because there's sort of a different plot line that was set up at the end of season two that's actually quite separate from the Laura stuff.
2: Oh, you mean, am I familiar with the show? Yeah, I mean, familiar yeah. with it to the point that I watched it once, but mm-hmm. you know, I'm not. Uh, why? What were you going to say?
1: Well, just I mean, this this question of um sort of re-centralizing the narrative on McLaughlin with this idea that that Cooper becomes the new Bob-inhabited figure and and setting all that stuff up. And I mean, I'm I'm very interested to see where that goes. I personally, I'm going to be fine with the Newton Peaks if it's just like. England Empire Redux for 18 hours. Like I, I have so little expectation about what it's going to be that I think I'm going to be interested in no matter what. But I, I do. I am a little trepidatious about how that's going to go over with um, humanity at large for Lynch. <laughs> uh, but, but I did want to say though about this this point you were making, Adam, about um, you know, Twin Peaks being something like a primal scene and, and Lynch wanting to go back to it. Uh, like this is one of these things that I think people have talked about in different ways, which is that what Lynch really loves and what he does really well with is these kind of spaces where he doesn't he feels like he can really live in the space and just sort of explore that from the perspective of being in it. And and that works both with Twin Peaks as an open-ended narrative, right? I mean this was what attracted him in the first place, the idea that which quickly turned out to not be true, but that he felt at the beginning like television would be something where he didn't need to wrap up a story. It could just continue on in all directions. That was one thing. And then you have a kind of interesting other version of that with Inland Empire, where he spends what, six, seven years filming a movie almost as if it was a TV show where he was filming an episode of it every sort of six months for seven years and then editing it into a feature. Um, So there is very, there's something clear about that, this idea of he likes being in the space. And I, and I do think it, um, I like your idea about the salvage operation, because it's one thing I've been thinking about a lot in relation to Twin Peaks, which is that some of the best work that is done here is often Lynch being able to, to to hone in on sort of like an accident or even somebody else's invention. Like the example we were talking about last week in the episode before the finale, uh, which is Tim Hunter's creation of, um, a mask for a character where he's wearing white makeup on his face and black on his teeth. Lynch reuses that kind of stuff in Fire Walk With Me. You get two sequences where people, yeah, have that again. And and so Lynch is sort of constantly doing this. Like, he's so open to sort of odd, weird accidents or one-offs, and then he builds them into a mythology in this very complex way, like the creamed corn. Anyway.
2: Wasn't Bob an accident?
1: Oh, yes. totally, yes, completely, yeah.
2: I discussed this, you know, so you have, like, one of the truly, truly frightening villains in anything that I can think of. And I'm not, I mean, I'm, you know, this podcast is not like, you know, personal reflections on Twin Peaks, but I will say the scene in Fire Walk with me where Laura sees him in her room, in the movie, not the show, I mean, it's scary in the show. It, to me, it's it's the scariest thing I've ever seen in a movie. And some of it has to do with the way it's edited, which is you see her reaction first. You, you yes. see her scream first. So the affect is totally about her face before you see Bob's. He is one of the iconic aspects of the show and he was total accident. Yeah. Right? yeah. The Reflection was in a mirror and they're like, Oh yeah, put him in there. Yeah. That's very hard to get one's mind around. When you think about how hard the filmmakers and artists work to create scary characters, scary ideas, scary images. And this is just something that mm-hmm. kind of accidentally ended up on camera and he built it out of that. Yeah. Because Robert Silver wasn't really a tutored actor either, right?
1: He was a stagehand. Uh, He was uh, I forget exactly what his job was, but he he had an important job on the set. But uh, but Simon, what were you going to say?
2: To
0: be honest, the only thing, really the only thing that gives me pause about the new season is maybe something to do with that where, you know, Lynch is able to, with just a little bit of adversity or being able to capitalize based on certain restrictions, Lynch is able to sort of create miracles. And if if there's anything that gives me a little bit of pause about the new season, it's this notion of he had total freedom. He, he, apparently, he did get some notes from from Showtime, but they were you know minimal at best. He wasn't really encumbered by anything, and he just gets free reign to do whatever. And I, I I maybe I'm gonna miss the 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 constraint and the adversity, and maybe there's maybe there's gonna be a certain dimension that's missing. Um, on the other hand, you know. <laughs> Inland Empire was him just doing his thing And it's bloody amazing So what am I talking about
2: (laughs) But I mean what's so fun about Inland Empire Is that something Kate was saying earlier was really smart. When you made an observation about Twin Peaks and Inland Empire as fine outlets for Lynch, and it's funny that in explicit and implicit ways, they're a complete repudiation of making movies. Twin Peaks is, I'm leaving Hollywood to try and make a movie. Of course, not leaving the apparatus of mainstream American production and budgets and resources, but for a different format. And then Inland Empire is his farewell to film, literally film, 35 millimeter for digital, but also it's about movie making being cursed and haunted you know in the same way that Mulholland Drive was but I think you know even more of a kiss off and one of the resounding claims in all the interviews Lynch is doing now it's come up in the couple of profiles I've read is whatever whatever you call this new Twin Peaks like an 18-hour movie or a TV series or a sequel he's like I'm not making a film again
1: yeah
2: you know and I I feel in a strange way that there's real disenchantment underneath that and Twin Peaks is set in a part of America or in an imagined part of America that's as far from showbiz as kind of possible. And that links it to something like Blue Velvet, whereas Mulholland Drive and Lost Highway and The um, Empire are his Los Angeles films. Yeah. But we'll see. I'm dreading, like Kate was saying, reading about this every week as it comes out. But I'm just not <laughs> going to be able to stop. I'm going to be desperately yeah desperately curious to know what people are writing
0: there's gonna be so many takes so many takes so many takes um the and maybe there's something to you know this notion that you know twin peaks is something that he keep that he returns to whereas other things aren't although he has hasn't he explicitly said that that uh that lost highway takes place like in the twin peaks universe
1: well, he, um, I think he said all his films take place in the Twin Peaks universe, which is really funny when you think about Dune. But yeah. Um, but yeah, that all of them take place in the Twin Peaks yeah. universe. We won't give I, it away, but there are indications in some of these uh, pieces that have been written that there were going to be very explicit references to some of Lynch's other films in the new series, which I'm excited about.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I love the idea of someone reading that the films are linked and then kind of starting to think about Twin Peaks' films like they're the Marvel Cinematic Universe or something and like trying to make explicit connections because that won't go well
2: well but every but we're living in an era now of of, of intensified continuity i don't mean the editing scheme i mean the, the franchise branding scheme right yeah. whether it's comic books or or superhero movies you know they're universals doing these monster movies now you know where have all these movies taking place in the tom cruise mummy universe but i mean with lynch it, it almost feels redundant to say they take place in the same universe because of course they do yeah you know um, i mean his his cinema uh, be, being this incredible cosmology and, and constellation of of things i have no trouble believing that at all and as far as dune taking place in that universe absolutely yeah <laughs> sure <laughs> um
0: but the, the actual point i the actual point i wanted to make was that you know like you said those those three works are sort of his la works whereas Something that Fire Walk With Me makes clear is that, you know, when you watch the show, it seems like, you know, America is America, but then Twin Peaks is this place where incredible things happen, and it's a place of beauty and terror. But Fire Walk With Me really makes explicit that you know, America is this place of of beauty and terror. Like these these things that happen aren't only restricted to Twin Peaks. Maybe maybe Twin Peaks is one of those places where the the contrast is greater and there's sort of more opportunity for beauty and then greater depths of terror. But you know, it really makes clear that there is you know these forces are are everywhere. And this is something that he's also talked about about the the new season that it's not going to be sort of it is going to take place sort of on a on a broader geographical canvas and maybe that's why he can't stay away because it's the it's the bit like literally the biggest possible project
1: well and i mean we haven't talked about it so much uh for Firewalk with me but we did talk about a version of this for the tv series tv series but i mean again even with Firewalk with me there's something really interesting here in the sense of lynch um despite what people were saying about Fire Walk With Me, which is that Lynch is sort of repeating the same things he's already done and he's becoming a self-parody and all of these things. I think there is a really interesting sense here in which Lynch is really abandoning a lot of... Um this iconography of his expected work up to that point, which is this sort of relationship to a kind of folksiness, like to a kind of sort of pro-conservative, backward-looking relationship to America and Americana. And Fire Walk With Me sort of abandons all of that. It's just like, absolutely not. This is the present we're living in now. I mean, we lose a lot of this vague 50s, 80s mix. It's just this is now, and it's not good. And so there's a a political interest thing there. But um, but anyway, I think we probably need to let Adam go, because he has to go back to his His regular life, but uh, I, I have a couple more things to say to Simon, so we're not going to wrap up just yet. But yeah, I don't know,
2: I'm, I'm, I'm going to thank you guys for having me, and uh, you know, inevitably when when this podcast, uh, are you guys going to be covering Eat the, the new show? We sure are. Well, then I will be tuning in to listen and when you guys can sort through the the takes for me um again i'm sorry i gotta bow out a bit early but uh, this was a lot of fun thank you guys for having me and you guys keep going do
1: you want to give your twitter handle or anything for people to find yeah
2: Yeah, if anybody wants to find me on twitter i'm under bro from another i tweet largely about the nba playoffs but those will be over soon about being a new dad that's not going to be over anytime soon and i'll probably tweet about twin peaks while watching it i think t- new twin peaks twitter is going to be intense you know, <laughs> it's going to be something some, 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 something else you guys follow kyle mclaughlin on twitter right
1: no i actually don't should i
2: he's a good account
1: good i'm i'm
2: i'm I'm in the tank for kyle mclaughlin he's in showgirls he's in my favorite you know couple of Lynch movies i mean he's great yeah his his, his twitter account is is solid so follow me and then follow (laughs) kyle
1: mclaughlin (laughs) deal
2: talk to you guys later thank you all
1: right thanks adam um hello simon so we are still here uh which is good because i have a few more things i wanted to say but um... of course you do
0: you know, you were talking about Lynch sort of abandoning the iconography and, you know, being at this screening where, you know, they were, this was only a couple nights ago that I saw uh, Firewalk with me on 35 and much like most Twin Peaks related events, they were serving, you know, fresh donuts and coffee and, you know, people came in, in, in outfits, someone came in a full like double R outfit which was very impressive, and they got a prize. And there was a raffle, and there was also this burlesque element that was thrown in, but that's way too much to get into right now. You know, it was all very sort of, you know, goofy, and, you know, coffee and pie, et cetera, et cetera. And the film doesn't do that at all. Like, there's, you know, there are mentions of coffee, and that's pretty much it. Like, there's none of the, none of the sort of goofy iconography from the show is really, um, is really replicated. And, you know, people have talked about the film lynch and his relationship with the audience as being perhaps contemptuous um i don't really buy that i mean i think that the there's certainly room to say that the film is riffing on stuff in the tv show and is maybe even parodying itself but ah, uh, it's I, I just don't think of lynch as a guy who cares about the audience i just don't like he's 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 not like a I think the classic example in in TV would be someone like David Chase, the guy who uh, who ran The Sopranos, uh, who was very pretty open about the fact that he had contempt for major portions of the audience and made that very clear in the last few seasons. Um, and I I just never thought of Lynch as uh, in in anything he's said or in any art he's made as having that kind of relationship.
1: No, I I completely agree, and I I I think that it's maybe most easily explained when I think the people like in order to like this film like in order to get something out of it and and sort of participate in it like the ideal audience member there this person that that maybe if lynch thinks about anybody at all it's like he actually has he's expecting a lot from them like he he he's this ideal audience member is somebody who is who is really willing to like be empathetic and to and to to sort of go through this horrible event to kind of you know experience something like <laughs> truth and art and all of these things. I mean, I think it's the opposite. I don't think it's that Lynch is like you suck and you're never going to get this and I'm going to make it despite your ignorance. It's (laughs) it's not that at all. Like I, I find it very depressing really when people kind of give that as an answer. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And I, I, the other thing I wanted to mention is that, you know, you explicitly mentioned a couple episodes of the podcast ago, um, you know, you were talking about Lynch's sort of painter background and in this film you actually get you get a very distinct callback to this to this notion that 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 he brings up when he t- talks about sort of be, awakening to film of you know of a moving image a moving painting or you know which 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 we get we literally get that in this film through the the painting of the of the doorway that moves and and, and changes you know sort of on its own one of the other things that i find incredible about his work is that he throws in these like sort of explicitly autobiographical elements into stories that seemingly don't have anything to do with with his background, like the way that Missoula, the place he was born, uh, gets thrown in uh, every once in a while, or the fact that his son shows up more so in this film even than he did on the show. Uh, and then this, you know, sort of very explicit callback to his original awakening to film when there's these elements of sort of love and these and these autobiographical elements thrown in i can't reconcile that with any kind of contemptuous reading
1: i can't either i mean i do think there are things here that lynch i think there's a way in which you can say that he it's not that he's contemptuous for the audience but that he is interested in maybe critically dealing like if not analytically but like critically dealing with things that he considers to be Problematic, and and like I've said some version of this uh, maybe early in the podcast, but is this idea that I think structures so much of what Lynch is doing, which is he deals with these worlds. I mean, everybody people tend to talk about it as if it's very clearly bifurcated, right? It's like there's the good and the bad, and there were a lot of critics that just sort of said this film is this like moralizing thing, and it's very conventional, and it's like judgments, and so and, which I don't agree with at all, and I, I don't think it's ever as easy as just saying it's it's good on this side and bad on that side. As I've said before here. I think it's that Lynch is really interested in this idea that both things are always present, the good and the bad are always there, and yet there is a very intense structuring, almost oppressive drive to only look at the good. And and right. this is like this is where a lot of this horror lives. It's not just, you know, it's it's laid out so thoroughly here with Laura. It's not just that Laura is being abused, it's that she is completely isolated. In her awareness of the abuse, everyone else around her sort of seems to be like something is wrong, but they all look away. I mean, even Donna, like who is really trying and you love Donna for it, is is just sort of structurally unable to see what is going on. And, and we haven't talked about it here yet very much, but one of the things that I think is really interesting about Fire Walk With Me is that you get uh, Sarah. You get more of Sarah as the mother figure mm-hmm. and you get some really unsettling sequences with... Grace Sabrisky, you, you get a dinner table sequence where Laura comes in and in the chronology of the film, it's right after Laura has seen her father come out of the house and she's she's realized that, that her father is Bob, maybe. This is one of these things that's complicated about the film is Laura is sort of continuously realizing that her father is Bob and then seeming to back away from it and then mm-hmm. realizing it again and backing away from it. But anyway, so she's seen her father coming out of the house and then you have this dinner table sequence, which you know is maybe not as brutal as the train car sequence at the end but it is very difficult to watch and it is um Leland uh telling Laura that she hasn't washed her hands and then he gets right up close to her and is playing with her necklace and asking her if it's from her lover and Sarah walks into the room and you see Sarah react she's immediately she walks in and she sees this like physical staging of them and is sort of like oh my god what's wrong and immediately goes into this defensive mode of of this is happening again. and and you know that like it is it's an open secret in their house that Leland's behavior towards his daughter is not okay. And Sarah just it, puts up with it. like Sarah is just quiet. and and I, I realized watching Fire Walk with me what a radical idea it is that Lynch simultaneously puts her in this position while also giving her clairvoyance. Sarah is also the person who see, who sees things that no one else can see. And yet, she can't. She either can't see what's happening right in front of her, or she can't find the way to talk about it. And mm-hmm. I, I find that so fascinating.
0: Right. Or you know, she's just like a re- like a regular traumatized person. Exactly. Aunt, yeah. Who you know? Yeah. This is you know that's where the banal meets the the supernatural, right? Like she has these gifts, but at the same time, you know, she's she's just a person who is in like dealing with like the most intimate, horrible possible you know circumstance and just and like you said sort of re-realizing it constantly and then not being able to accept it um as as the truth because why would you want to accept it um the since you mentioned you know sort of her gifts I guess we have to talk about sort of the scene that most explicitly calls back to the series um and sort of We were talking about time travel and time jumps last week. There's an incredible scene of Annie showing up for approximately 20... Heather Graham getting about 25 seconds of screen time, maybe less, to tell her about Dale and what his situation is. I mean, if you were going into the film as a series fan and hoping for answers, I honestly think that was probably the scene that made you the angriest because... It's him acknowledging, "Oh yeah, the series does exist, and I totally could give you a lot more of this, but I'm just gonna give you this."
1: <laughs> yeah, it's actually really fascinating. In the in the missing pieces, uh, that sequence is elaborated on. You get you get more sequences with Annie, and what's really interesting in terms of this kind of time y question is, uh, in one of the last missing pieces, um, in this expanded set of stuff that's happening around the moment when Coop is waking up in the great Northern, um, Annie's in the hospital and Annie wakes up momentarily and says to the nurse line for line, exactly what she says to Laura in this dream thing. And she's in this sort of the exact same position. She's just in a nursing gown. And so you have this sort of doubling again and this linking of Mm -hmm. like Laura somehow seeing this, this future moment, um, so again, there's interesting stuff there. I remember that when I was watching *Fire Walk with Me* when I was younger, and and being like, "What? Like, oh, Annie in the <laughs> Dale in the Lodge." I was like, "Laura, write it in your diary." You know, I, it was like totally got me. I mean, I don't remember it annoying me. I just remember being like, "Oh," um, when that happened. But I, that whole sequence with Laura, because that's the same sequence where you get that amazing thing where the painting sort of turns into the film, and Laura's in the painting, and. Um, I think the thing that's so amazing about that Annie sequence is Laura, you know, is in the bed and she sees the painting and then she turns to her side and Annie is there and and bloodied and she says the same things And then Laura looks to the door on her right and then she looks back and Annie has disappeared and Laura starts freaking out. Like, Laura starts screaming. And I'm like, wouldn't you start screaming at the beginning when you find, like, a a dead body in your bed? But again, it's just Lynch shifts these sort of, like, expected, effective responses just a little bit and that's just enough to kind of terrify you. It's so, yeah, great.
0: I mean, I don't know exactly how much more, uh, how much longer we want to go. I did want to, I couldn't, I couldn't get through this podcast without pointing out one of the things about the reception of the film that's always bothered me, which is that people like to talk about Firewalk with Me as a film that was booed at Con, and uh, my my good friend Eduardo Lucatero, who goes to Con every year, would be annoyed at me if I didn't mention so many things get booed at Con. Almost everything gets booed by somebody at Con. It's a very very commonplace occurrence. Yes, the movie was 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 trashed in a lot of critical circles. That's not made up. But people make too much about the booing thing, and I I know there's even been you know film series uh, of you know stuff booed at con, which like okay fine, but it's 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 incredibly commonplace at con. Incredible, incredible films have been booed at con. It's just what they do there.
1: Yeah, it's it's sort of my understanding that it's kind of part of the reception culture. It's like people clap and then people boo. It's just like everybody does one or the other. So you get you get a mix of both pretty much at every film. but anyway, yeah, so that that is very true. Um, I mean, I have a couple more things I just wanted to run through that I hadn't uh, been able to get to yet. So one which I've been, again, meaning to mention on uh, in relation to the series, too, and I haven't had a chance to do this, but I think it's really uh, relevant for Lynch, and I'm interested to see how it plays out in the series going forward. This idea of Lynch being something like um, almost, like he's working almost in the vein of kind of like Victorian spiritualism, sort of, in the sense of like early 1900s fascination with kind of, um, you know, like ghosts and all of that stuff, etc., etc., but that all of it is sort of always housed in like, electronic forms or like new technology becomes like the space of the ghost and the uncanny and all of this strange hmm. stuff and when you start to watch in lynch's films you realize very quickly that like things like telephones and in in firewalk with me and chin peaks most famously ceiling fans become the sort of crossover space of just a horror and nightmare mm-hmm. like electricity and i mean and then in lost highway it's like the videotapes like all of these things
0: and here the security camera
1: exactly yeah and i was gonna say like in fire walk with me you get almost a framing device where static like televisual static uh as an object becomes a sort of interdimensional medium and you as you move from like it's in the opening credits but then also as you move from the fbi office into the convenience store space of garmin Bozia and all of this stuff um And and so there's something interesting there, because I mean, I think like as Adam pointed out, maybe at the beginning with this idea of Lynch hitting the television, uh, is this sort of maybe screw you to television, television audiences, like maybe that's true in terms of an aesthetic sense, but in terms of a kind of technological sense, Lynch is also really fascinated in like a terrified kind of, but very respectful way towards like the medium of video and television and all of these things. Um, So that's one thing I wanted to mention. The other thing I wanted to mention, because I just think it is such a perfect coda to get at this idea of Twin Peaks, uh, of Firewalk With Me as a sort of inversion of the television show of Twin Peaks, is a story we've never mentioned on the podcast, but is a kind of infamous story about Twin Peaks, which is that Lynch apparently told one of the production designers very early on in the show that the color blue was not to be used on the television show, and it, and it for the most part it's pretty true. If you go back and look, there is there are no blue props. There is almost never blue lighting. The closest you get is like white white lighting that verges on the blue side of things, but mostly there's no blue in the television show. Uh, it's all red and sort of greens. And then when you get to Fire Walk with Me, where you have um, you're on this other side of everything. Fire Walk with Me is like predominantly blue. the The opening credits are blue. You get consistently blue light. Like Donna sort of always has blue light. I mean, uh, Laura has blue light being shone on her. Leland drives a blue car. Like, it's it's consistently there. And I mm. and I find it a really interesting formal move in the sense of it's like blue has been reserved for Laura. Like Laura sees the world through blue and the rest of twin peaks sees it through this like warmth red kind of colors. And Laura sees the opposite side of that. And i I just found that like such a rich idea.
0: Huh? Yeah. And then and she, she's gone and the blue goes with her. Yeah, it's that's true. uh that's a fascinating, I didn't, I'd never even picked up on that before. Um, I mean, I guess we, we should be thinking about wrapping we up, should. but you know, <laughs> you know, as we end this or think about ending this podcast, you know, the next time we sit down to record, uh, it will be to discuss new episodes, and I I don't want to go on about this too long. But I've been thinking a lot about sort of the the critical moment that Twin Peaks is returning into. Um, is sorry the the mo you know our moment now like this 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 thing from the past is coming back to a very very different critical and cultural moment, and I think that um, the. The one thing I will say to listeners of this podcast there's gonna be a lot of conversations about the show and there's gonna be a lot of it's um, gonna be a lot of takes and I can I feel like I can predict what a lot of them are and um, I'm hoping there will be others that I could have never predicted and my the only advice I can give is to trust no one except us <laughs>
1: Um, or maybe just don't look at anything. Like maybe this is also a very reasonable thing. Like I'm not saying don't listen to the podcast cause I obviously want you to listen to the podcast, but, um, <laughs> but I, I do think there is a sense in which, yeah, I think there is going to be a real saturation of a certain kind of like very rapid response to the show. And And that kind of stuff, you know, can lead to, as we've already talked about, very quick responses to work that maybe requires you to live in it for a little bit and to, like, get on board with it and to go along with it, which is, I think, why Simon and I have already implied that we're a little trepidatious about this idea that we're going to sort of get on the horn right after the episode show and give you our very considered talk, because that's going to be very difficult. Like, Lynch really does sometimes work the best when you let it just sink in and you live with it and you go back to it and, and maybe don't listen right away to everybody saying, well, it is this or it isn't that or whatever. Cause I'm not sure it's going to be that simple.
0: Yeah. Uh, I'm thinking about writing about this before the the new season starts just to sort of, to look at how, you know, the critical culture, especially in the TV realm kind of works now and how Twin Peaks isn't really built for that. Uh, but you know, that's, I guess that's a, that's something that, that you may or may not be able to find on Sorted Cinema over the next couple of days, uh, depending on how confident I feel about my own argument. Uh, anyway, I will
1: I will also be having to come up with some writing about the new episodes. I won't say where yet, just in case something horrible goes awry or something. But I but it's very likely that I'll have a piece about the new the first four episodes uh, that will come out pretty quickly after those episodes arrive. So we'll see if I can get that yes. done. <laughs> um, but yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Um... Anyway, so I, uh, is there anything else you wanted to mention before we go?
1: Uh, no, except maybe just to say that, uh, you know, this has been a good amount of work, but it has been super, super fun, and Simon Howell deserves a huge round of applause for doing all of the editing and all of the work to make this happen, and chasing me down and helping me us we, we get guests and all of this work that goes into this, so it, I've had a blast and I'm super appreciative that uh, Simon and Sorted Cinema and Ricky and everybody make this possible, so...
0: Well, yeah, it's it's a lot of work, but it's been super fun. I feel like, I mean, yeah, this is very much the end of like one version of the podcast. I have no idea what the rest of this will be like. Uh, what's funny is that we, if, if timing works out correctly, we're supposed to be recording our next episode uh, in person because you're going to be in Toronto, and um, which is so it's it's appropriate that we're going to be recording in a totally different way for a totally different experience. I have no idea what that podcast is going to be like or if it's even going to be listenable, but uh, I hope you'll join us for that. And uh, yeah, good viewing, everyone. And uh, we'll talk to you when we talk to you.